0: Once more, I would ask you to turn in your Bible, please, to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. As a minister of the Gospel and as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, I feel that it is my duty, it is incumbent upon me that I be mindful, observative of the spiritual condition not only of the church, but of the world at large. I not only feel that it is the duty of pastors to be mindful of the spiritual climate of the world in which we live, I personally believe that it is the duty of every born-again man, every citizen of the kingdom of God, not only to be concerned about the climate, the spiritual climate of the church, but we're very concerned about that. But I'm not so sure that we're as concerned as we ought to be about the general spiritual climate of the world in which we live, of our generation, of our society. It seems to me that there are two extremely dangerous opinions which prevail among men regarding the spiritual condition of our society. The first attitude is found in the church. Yes, I think perhaps even in our own assembly. It is an attitude of, how shall I say, blatant pessimism. The world we think is unsavable. We're tempted to say it has gone to the God, and there's no hope for it. There's no hope for it. And this attitude of pessimism toward the world at large extends itself even to our attitudes for individual sinners, individual unbelievers. I think while we would not perhaps say this so much outwardly, that we're guilty many times of thinking it in our hearts. As we are brought in contact with individual men outside of Christ, men who are perishing, men who have a condemnation of the justice of God abiding on their heads even at this hour, and we're brought into their presence in one way or another. We're brought to rub elbows with them as it were. And we think of ourselves, consciously or subconsciously, be it as it may, they are materialistic, so caught up in things, so pleasure placed full of atheistic, agnostic education, that if I should give the gospel to them, they would only laugh at me. Therefore, there's really no reason to expend my time and my energy trying to win them to Christ. I'll just let them go. You ever find yourself thinking like that? And those few occasions in which we do feel compelled to deal with men about their souls. At first, they do laugh, perhaps, and they do turn a cold shoulder. and that only serves to confirm this attitude of pessimism. The world has gone to the dogs. Let's just hold on if we can to Jesus' son. The second attitude, at the other extreme, is found in the world itself, amongst sinners. And this attitude is an attitude of presumptive complacency. I think many lost men, the majority of lost men, perhaps even some of you here today, who are outside of Jesus Christ, are guilty of thinking something along these lines. Well, we're not really as bad as those Christians make us out to be. We're not really as sinful and depraved and hopeless and helpless as that Bible says we are. Besides, we don't really have to give an account to anyone for our actions except ourselves. If we live wickedly, it will be only to our own hurt. We don't really have to give an account to God. In fact, I doubt that there is a God. And if there is a God, He's a God of love and not a God of wrath. So there's no reason for alarm. There's no reason for concern. And even though we do have our problems in the world, they aren't so bad, but what we can write them if we only put our minds to it. And therefore you find in the church an attitude of pessimism toward the world. In the world, an attitude of complacency. Oh yes, we've got problems, we've got social problems, we've got economic problems, we've even got moral problems, but really all we have to do is set our minds to it, give a combined effort in the community, and we can make everything right without the God of the Christians. We don't need that. Surely we don't need their gospel, we don't need the grace that they talk about. Our text this morning, in Mark chapter Five, is a refutation of both these erroneous extremes, and they're both dangerous, my dear people. Both dangerous, and they're both wise. To the church, this text reminds us of the power that is resident within our God, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you read the text preceding this in Mark chapter 4, you saw that just prior to the text in which we shall find ourselves this morning, our Lord with his disciples had been sailing on the Sea of Galilee when they were overtaken by a mighty, tumultuous storm. quite in the lower parts of the ship asleep. But the disciples were running through a fro on the top of the ship, fearing for their lives. And finally, in desperation, they come to the Lord and they said, Well, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And Christ simply arose. He went aboard the ship. He went out into the open and he said, Be still. And even his disciples looked in absolute amazement, and they said, "What kind of man is this? That even the wind obeys his voice. We find Christ in chapter four stilling a wild storm, and in chapter five we find him stilling a wild man. And my dear people, Jesus Christ has not lost one eye out of his strength. He still calms the mighty sea. He still heals the sick. He still, my dear people, has the power to convert sinners and we must never forget that. And I don't care how helpless men appear to be and how hopeless the world appears to be. Jesus Christ has the power to save. He can save the man in Mark chapter 5. He can save any sinner in the face of the world today. To the world... In its complacency, this text gives an example of a man. A man, even though we might look at this man and say, Well, he is an extreme case of depravity, but not so. This man is no more depraved than you are, apart from the grace of God. And yet this man was absolutely impotent to help himself, all the best efforts of his own doing all the best efforts of his neighbors were all fruitless. The man's only hope is in the power of God. And for those of you here today outside of Christ, who think that you're not so bad as the Bible says you are, and that you can actually save yourself any time you put your mind to it, take a lesson, take instruction from this man here, a man who could do nothing to save himself. His only hope is in the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. My purpose this morning in going into Mark chapter 5 is simply to introduce the text. We don't have time to go all the way through it. I just want to introduce it to you, and if the Lord is pleased this evening, we'll come back and we'll conclude the text. There are two things that I want you to see this morning. First of all, I want to introduce you to a poor, miserable sinner. And then I want to introduce you to some demons from hell. And if we can make their acquaintance, we'll be in a better position to understand the remainder of this text. First of all, in the first five verses of this text, we are introduced to a poor, miserable sinner. And I've read many accounts about miserable sinners. And there are many accounts in the Scriptures about men who were converted by the power of God. But I do not believe in all of Scripture there is a single individual so miserable as the man in Mark chapter 5 the subject of our text, the man about whom I'm speaking, burst upon the scene in what appears to be a mad, raging charge for Jesus Christ and his disciples. The vessel carrying Christ and carrying the disciples, after the Lord had, had filled the raging sea, after he had brought to rest the raging storm, the ship came very passively to land. And it came to rest in something of a barren area on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in the providence of God, mind you, not by chance, in the providence of God, it just so happened, as it were, that this ship came to rest next to the home of a raging man, a wild man. Verse 1 tells us that this account occurred in the country of the Gadarenes, probably near a small town by the name of Kersha. Now, no sooner did the ship carrying Christ and his disciples strike the shore, and Jesus Christ began to disembark. No sooner did this happen than suddenly this man came raging toward Christ. We read in verse 2 And when he, that is, Christ, was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit. Now, I believe that this statement indicates that the man began a ferocious charge toward Christ. And I believe that it was his intent, I believe that it was his purpose to do Jesus Christ harm. And you say, why do you come to that conclusion? It doesn't appear to be so obvious in the text. Well, I come to that conclusion for a number of reasons. First of all, we're told in the text that the man was a wild man. This is indicated by the fact that he lived in food. Now, let's try to get, in our mind a vision of this geographical area. Picture in your mind the vast Sea of Galilee, beating against the shore of a very desolate area. Actually, this particular part of the coast was very mountainous. And the sea came to rest at the bottom of a steep incline. And up at the top of this incline, or mountain, and actually they were mountains, steep mountains, Toward the top of these mountains there were various caves. The citizens of this particular region used those caves as tombs to bury the dead. This man lived in the tombs. He lived in among the carcasses of the dead. What kind of man would do that? He'd say he was insane. No, Scripture doesn't say that. This man was not insane. He was about a man just as normal as you and I, except for one thing. He had an unclean spirit. He lived in the tombs. He was a wild man. The word immediately in our text, in verse 2, and when Jesus Christ has come out of the ship, immediately, suddenly, this word seems to indicate a rapid approach toward Christ. Now, when you take this with the account that Matthew gives, in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 8, you have... accompanying accompanying accounts of this particular occasion. And it's really very necessary that you read what Matthew says and what Luke says in order to uh, get further information regarding this entire episode in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now Matthew tells us that this man was so ferocious that the local residents of this area would not dare to pass by where he lived. And the reason they would not dare come where Christ was at that very moment was because the man was ferocious. He was a wild man. He was a violent man. And therefore I conclude that when we read in verse 2 that immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. I picture in my mind Jesus Christ and his disciples coming to the shore, and this man, up in the caves, up in the tombs, among the carcasses of the dead, seeing them and doing what he had always done, when anyone dared to encroach upon his territory, upon his domain, he came charging for them. Now the mountain was a rather steep mountain. He had a great way to come. He had no idea who it was. All he knew, there were strangers, there were men, and it was his and his purpose to come violently upon them and to do them harm. And the reason that all of this took Place. The reason for the man's wildness, as I've already said, is because he had an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit, yet a demon. Now, not much is said about demons today. When you talk about demons, even in the church, people kind of, <coughs> you know, really they demons, do you? My dear people, do you hear me and hear me well, as I hope to show you at the conclusion of this message. Demonic activity, as far as I'm concerned, is the only possible explanation for a lot of the things that are happening in our own society, even at this present hour. Do I believe in demons? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. And the Bible seems to see teach us that there are various kinds of demons. Various kinds, and it's not my purpose to go into all the varieties this morning. This man had an unclean spirit. The scripture seems to indicate that they are all religious demons. Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of life. There are demons who influence men to become very religious. Oh, to be sure, their religion is void of grace and truth. But many times, demon-influenced or demon-possessed people are very religious people. They're adamant in their religion. They're zealous for their religion. And often, that is a result of demonic influence. There are other demons who seem to specialize in causing deep emotional and mental depression and melancholy. The particular demon that this man had is called an unclean spirit, an unclean demon. These demons were characterized by overt acts of immorality and violence. When they came upon men to possess them, to influence them, they influenced them toward violence, toward immorality, toward all manner of uncleanness. Now, later in the text, we are given to understand that this man not only had one unclean spirit, he had a great multitude of demons possessing his body and his soul. And yet there seemed to be one demon who was the spokesman for all the rest. And this one demon had such control over the, even the vocal powers of this man that they used his own vocal apparatus to talk. The man was in sad shape. He was a demon-possessed man. Now, as we move into verses 3 through 5... We are given some additional information about the man himself. Now, before we investigate Mark's words, I think it might be well to pause and consider something which Luke said about the man. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to Matthew chapter eight and to Luke chapter eight, but I would encourage you to read those to read those various accounts. Luke tells us in his record of this episode that the man came out of the city. That the man came out of the city. Now, we know that his immediate residence at this time was the tomb. He came directly out of the tomb. But Ruth seems to want us to understand that the man did not always live in tombs? He hadn't always been a wild man. But at one time, he lived in the city. He lived like everyone else. You see, the man had not always been a wild hermit. Once upon a time, he lived in the city and appeared to be just as normal as everyone else about him. We might even conclude that at one time he had been a respected member of the community, perhaps a family man, perhaps an an upright businessman. Yet, we know for a fact that the man was outside of Christ. He was a stranger to grace. He was dead in trespasses and sins. He was a rebel against God. And for that reason, he was possessed or taken captive by demons. You say, you mean he was demon-possessed just because he was lost? Mind your people, do you think he invited the demons in? Do you think he made application to tell that he might have a few demons to keep him company? This this brings a very important question to mind. What kind of people can be possessed by demons? What kind of people can be demon possessed? Well, first of all, be very sure of this. True Christians cannot be demon possessed. And there are a number of reasons why true Christians cannot be demon-possessed. For one thing, by the power of God's grace, they have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That removes them out from under the dominion of hell. They cannot be demon-possessed. They are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they have been given spiritual life. They've been given a new heart. Once, by nature, they were dead in trespasses and sins, but they've been quickened and made alive by the Holy Spirit. They've been given a new heart. The heart of stone has been taken out, and a heart of flesh has been given. They have a heart to know and to love God. Thirdly, they have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit himself has taken up residence within them, and you must never believe that demons can coexist in the same temple where the Spirit of God abides. And then... Fourthly and finally, they have been married to Jesus Christ. They are the bride of Christ, and we must never suppose that Jesus Christ would permit his lovely, precious bride, the one for whom he died, to ever come under the dominion, possession of Satan and the demonic forces of hell. It can never be. True Christians can never be possessed by demons. They may be attacked by demons, they may be brought under the temporary influence of demons, but they can never be possessed. However, While true believers, regenerate men, can never be possessed by demons, my dear people, everyone else in the world can be. You don't have to be a particular kind of sinner to qualify for demon possession. You don't have to be a prostitute. You don't have to be an alcoholic. You don't have to be an impulsive liar. You don't have to be a sexual pervert. All you have to do is be wrong. Every unregenerate man is susceptible to demonic possession. You say, well, that's a rather frightening statement. Do you have a scriptural basis for it? Yes, I think I do. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that the prince of the power of the air... Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan and all his demonic legions, his emissaries. In Ephesians 2, we're told that the prince and power of the air is continually working in the children of disobedience, continually working in unconverted men. Furthermore, Paul adds to this in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26. He gives us to understand that any and every unconverted man can be, quote, taken, captive by Satan at his will. Imagine, people, it is a great sin of unbelief to refuse to believe that unconverted members of our family, of our neighborhood, are susceptible to demon possession. How many of you parents know what it is to regularly feed the blood of Jesus Christ over your children? you don't know what that's all about, may God teach you to do it. When we brought Glenn home from the hospital, I went into his room and I treated the blood of Jesus Christ over his room, over his bed. And I continually do that, because as far as I know, he's outside of Christ. And so I don't like that. Mind your people, I don't like it either. But it's true. Men outside of Christ can be taken captive by Satan at his will. This means that apart from the sovereign goodness of God, who controls even Satan, there is absolutely nothing, there is absolutely nothing in any unconverted sinner to prevent demon possession. Education doesn't prevent it. Sometimes we have the idea that only the hot and hot in Africa can be demon-possessed. Only the man who runs around without any clothes on. Only the illiterate. My dear people, that's foolishness. Some of the main forces of hell itself are well-educated, prim and proper individuals who have the respect of everyone and do the most harm. Education is not a preventative. Morality is not a preventative. Culture is not a preventative. Now, blessed be God, where there are parents who play over their children, I believe that a hedge is built about them. This is the essence of covenant theology, that those children born into families that are regenerate have a distinct advantage over those children born in unconverted households. What advantage do they have? It's not an automatic advantage, my dear people. Your children don't have an automatic advantage just because you profess to be Christians. They are placed in a household where if indeed the parents have any spirituality, they are placed in a position where they're prayed over and witnessed to. Them. If you don't pray over your children and if you don't witness to then they don't have any advantage giving your presence. Bless blessed be God, he does build a hedge around those children, around those individuals who are prayed over and watched over. But you know as well as I do that most of humanity has no one who cares for their soul, no one who prays over them, no one who watches over them. And they have nothing within themselves to prevent Satan from coming at his whim and fancy and captivating their souls and leading them to and fro as he pleases. Oh, my dear people, we must not consider that this poor sinner in Mark chapter 5 was in any sense more depraved than we. His condemnation before God was no deeper than ours. His crimes were no worse than ours. He was a child of Adam. By nature he was dead in trespasses and sins. There was no good thing in him. He knew not the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan came and he took him captive. And my dear people, if you're here outside of Christ, he can do that to you. And there's nothing you can do to stop him. Yet the fact that this man was possessed not only of one demon but by a legion of demons would make it appear that the man was unsavable. Would make it appear that if there was ever, ever a man who had been given up by God, it was this man. And that's exactly what makes this text so remarkable. Scripture indicates that the demons of hell had turned this child of Adam. You know, not all children of Adam are wild beasts. Lost they are, depraved they are, but many depraved men are moral men who have a measure of normalcy. But the demons of hell had taken this man and had turned him into a wild beast who appeared to be unsavable. Luke tells us that he wore no clothes and lived in no house. Matthew tells us that he was exceedingly fierce, so that no one dared to pass by where he lived. Mark tells us here before us that the strength of demonic possession was such that he could not be bound with fetters or chains. He had often been fettered with chains, but he always broke them asunder. Night and day he roamed about the mountains, in and out of the tombs amongst the dead, and he cried and he cut himself with stones. Not all demon possessed men do that. But this man did. He had been taken captive by Satan and by the legions of hell itself. You know these statements, particularly the statements in verse 4, regarding the fact that he had been bound by his neighbors. And that's what it means. His neighbors, those who lived about him, had come with chains. And they had come with leather stains. They had come with fetters, And they had tried to tie the man down. They had tried to restrict his movement. And somehow this indicates to me that perhaps they were more concerned about their own safety and protection than they were about his relief and well-being. Even possession was not an unusual thing in this day. But it seemed that these people, the people who lived around this man, were not so concerned with doing him good. They just wanted to be rid of the man. They wanted to be sure he wouldn't do anything to them, that he wouldn't hurt them. They considered him a hopeless cause. They just wanted to be free of him. Listen to me, my people. I think that this speaks of our attitude toward lost men in the world in which we live. It seems to me that we consider this generation as a lost cause. And the only thing that we're really concerned about is how we can avoid being hurt by them. If at all possible, we don't want to live with them. We don't want to have them as our next-door neighbors. We don't want to work beside them. We want our children to go to school with them. We just don't want anything about them to rub off on us. So what do we do? We isolate ourselves. We say to ourselves, well, it wouldn't do any good to witness to them. Wouldn't do any good to preach to them, because if we preach and witness to them, they'd only laugh at us. The only thing we can do is come together in our little clan and our little clique." and just pull together and pray that Jesus will come and get us out of this mess. My dear people, if that's true, and I believe it is true, that we're no better than the neighbors of this man who brought their chains and said, let's tie this man down so he won't injure us, he won't hurt us. Moving into the remainder of the text, at least the text for the morning. Coming into verses 6 through 10, we are given an introduction to the demons that possess the man. The focus turns from the man, the poor miserable sinner, to the demons who controlled him. Verse 6 seems to suggest that as the man came wildly charging down the mountain toward those figures getting out of the ship, that suddenly the demons that possessed him recognized one of the figures. They recognized that one of the men getting out of the ship was none other than the Christ of God. And suddenly, we read in verse 6, that when he saw Jesus, we had no indication that he recognized Christ when he started. But as he got closer, he recognized Jesus. Now, we have no reason to think that this man, as an individual, had ever seen Jesus, who had any knowledge of him. But you see, the demons knew who he was. The demons knew Christ before Christ became flesh. They knew Christ before the world was spoken into existence. They knew very well who he was. And as the demons who possessed the man recognized that this was the Christ of God, suddenly their violence was turned to submission and they fell on the ground and they began to worship. What does this teach us? It shows that even the forces of hell possess a fearful reverence for God. What does James says about the demons, say about the demons of hell? James says that the demons believe and they watch. They tremble. They tremble. In a few moments, I'll show you why they tremble. And it's too bad that the sons of Adam are not as wise as the demons of hell. If we knew what they knew, my dear people, we would tremble too. Some of you who are so complacent in your lost estate, if you knew what the demons of hell know, you'd fall on your face this morning. You'd kiss the feet of the Son of God. you say, well, if they know all this, why aren't they saved? Because it's not God's purpose to save them. In this account, we have demons pleading for mercy. There'll be no salvation for the demons of hell. You see, there's no salvation apart from the grace of God, and the grace of God has been withheld from the fallen angels. My dear people, can you not see even from this that there is no salvation apart from the sovereign grace of our God? He this raising toward the individuals getting out of the boat. But as he came nearer, the demons recognized Christ. And they came and they fell before him. And this is what they said. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? Oh, that's a remarkable statement. Have you ever been tempted to doubt the Godhood of Jesus Christ? With that man who lived almost 2,000 years ago, supposedly born of a virgin who lived a life of poverty, walked amongst men performing mir- miracles, and yet he was rejected and despised of men, crucified, buried away from the dead, ascended into heaven with power and great glory. Are you ever tempted to gasp whether or not he was God? you never heard anybody question his deity? My dear people, all oh, you have to go. You don't have to go very far. Within 20 miles of the church in which we are now, A city, you can go to universities in which you have men with great academic credentials standing in classrooms denying the deity of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Have you ever wondered whether or not the God of the Bible is really omnipotent? Whether he really is transcendent and supreme above all? Uh, Take instruction from the demons of hell. You see, in many respects, the forces of the fallen angels are much wiser than natural men. Well, they never doubt. They do not doubt the deity of Jesus Christ, and they do not doubt the supremacy of God. When they see Christ, they fall before him, and they say, What am I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of what kind of God? The Most High God. You see, demons may tempt men to doubt the deity of Christ in order to damn their souls. But the demons themselves know who he is, and they know who God is, and they tremble at his presence. Oh, and some of you might come to know what the demons of hell know. We've got adults. We've got young people here this morning who do not think very highly of God. Oh, you believe all the things, but you never pray and never fear and never tremble in this presence. You know nothing of this kind of worship. You know nothing of being humbled before Him, broken, crying out for mercy, or oh, that you might take instruction from the demons of hell. What did they pray for? What did they want? Well, we look here. And we see that they pleaded for something. In Mark, we read these words. I adjure thee. That is the demon speaking through the man. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Literally, they were saying, promise me in the name of God that you won't torture me. Luke gives us this expression. I beseech thee, torment me not. In other words, I beg you. I plead with you. Don't torture me. Matthew gives us this declaration. Thou art thou come to torment me, to torment us before the time. What does all this mean? What were the demons waiting for? You see, my dear people, the fallen angels, the demons of hell, Satan himself, know full well that their eternal damnation is assured. You see, it's just a matter of time until the day of judgment. It's just a matter of time until they are finally assigned and confined to the torturous abyss of hell forevermore. When Jesus, the Christ of God, came into their presence, and when they listened to what he was saying to the man, they began to wonder, Is he going to cast us into hell before the day of judgment? Has he come to judge us before the appointed hour? Now, what was Christ saying that caused their alarm? Well, look at verse 8. For he said unto them, that is literally, he had been saved, come out of him, you unclean spirit." From what Christ was saying, even as they drew nigh, they perceived that he had come with a resolute purpose. You see, that boat didn't just happen to come ashore at that particular place. That wasn't chance, my dear people. Christ was the one who calmed the sea, and he was the one who brought the ship to land, and he brought it to land at a particular place for a particular purpose. Remember when Christ met Zacchaeus? He said, Today salvation is come to thy house. And that's exactly what these demons recognized. Christ had come to this place for the resolute purpose of saving this particular man. And that meant that they would be cast out. And the thing that terrified them is that Christ would cast them into hell. Oh, my dear people, I would that God would somehow teach you, those of you outside of Christ, The inevitability of judgment as these demons recognize it. Judgment was coming. No doubt in their mind about that. It's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Even more, I pray that Jesus Christ might come to you with the same resolute determination that he had as he came to this man. Because my dear people, in this whole account, you don't read about this man doing one thing. He didn't do a thing, but Christ came to him. He tapped out the demons. He saved the man. Oh, that Christ has come to you, on son. Going back to our text, we see that Christ, after the demons that had their say, asked the man a question. He looked at the man and he said, What's your name? Now that is a rather strange question for the Son of God to ask. Could it be that Christ somehow missed something and needed some information? no. Our Lord knew full so well who the man was. Well, why did he ask the question? He asked the question, I think, for two reasons. First of all, I think he asked the question to impress upon his disciples who were standing around. And I can, if, if, I, might, uh, if I might allegorize for just a moment, I think I can imagine Peter, James, and John getting back in the ship, hiding, scared to death. And I believe that Christ asked this question for their benefit. I believe he was trying to impress upon them and upon us, my dear people, the terrible need of a man outside of grace. Obviously, the man was a sinner. He was without God, and he was without hope, and he was without inability to seek a remedy for his condition. In addition to that, he was a helpless pawn of satanic power. And I know know very well that not all unconverted men are demons of death. But my dear people, they are just as truly subject to demonic influence and control as this poor man. They're without God and they're without hope. And these are facts that we need to see and realize. These are facts that these disciples needed to see. And I'll tell you something. A man will never amount to anything in the gospel ministry until he comes to realize that men outside of Christ are without God, they're without hope and they're without strength. And the reason that we don't play with greater fervor for the salvation of men, and the reason we don't witness with greater boldness, is because we're not really sure of this. It hasn't been impressed upon us as it should be. Christ was concerned with his disciples, and that we might see the helpless condition of this man. And I believe he had another reason for asking the question. And that is to bring to the consciousness. You see, this man was not unconscious, he was demon possessed, but he wasn't dead. And our Lord asks this question in order to bring this man to the realization of his need, to the realization of his terrible state. No man will ever be converted until he is made aware of his sinfulness, of his guilt, and of his impotency before God. And as you look at this man, I would to God that you could see a reflection of yourself. You can do no more to save yourself than this man could do to save himself. Not one bit more. Now, what was the reply to our word question? Well, here it is, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, do you think that this was the name his mother gave him? No. And no doubt that that man was there, and he heard his own voice speaking these words. It was a reminder to him that something was terribly wrong. Here. He knew that that wasn't the name his mother gave him. But you see, the demons had such control over the man. They not only changed his personality, they even changed his name. The name Legion was not <laughs> was not a common name, I believe It was the name that the demons of hell gave to this man. The word Legion is a military term denoting a massive force of soldiers. The size of the force depends on the particular army. Usually, it was not less than six thousand soldiers. The idea was that a large number of demons had taken refuge in this poor man. Some of Satan's army of terror had come into his soul and into his body. How could he ever be saved? Well, in verse 10, and this is the concluding verse of our study this morning, we find the demons making a request of Jesus Christ. And he, the chief demon, besought Christ much that he would not send them away out of the country. In Luke, we read this account. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And that doesn't mean the sea. That means the abyss. Water doesn't kill beings. And when those swine, as we shall see tonight, went running violently into the Sea of Galilee, that doesn't mean that the demons were killed. The swine died. The demons were still alive. The demons realized that they were fully subject to the control and authority of Jesus Christ. And this realization brought two great fears to them. First of all, they had a fear of going to hell. Yes, they feared that. There wasn't anything else. They feared that he would cast them into hell at that very moment, and he could have done it. But he didn't do it. In a moment, I'll tell you why. The second thing they feared was that Christ would cast them out of that immediate geographical area. Don't cast us out of this country. We like it here. This is a nice place for us to live. Why? You say, well, because there were truths and torches of dead men and demons like dead men. Uh, where did you get out of here? Not the Hitchcock. Not the scriptures. I going to say. Why do you think they like this area? Oh, well, I think there was one reason. They didn't meet with very much resistance. They could do whatever they wanted to do, and there was nobody there to stop them. And I tell you, my dear people, in conclusion, that I'm convinced that our own country, our beloved America, has become the headquarters for much demonic activity. You say, oh, I don't believe that. We're a civilized center. How else do you explain the bizarre, frightening, fearful activity of so many individuals and so many groups? Did you know that there's a so-called rock music singer? He, in the process of his performance, takes live animals and kills them before his audience. His name is Al Alcubus, and he takes live birds and he puts their wings off. And bit by bit, he kills them. You tell me that that is the normal activity of even a depraved man? Not so, my brother. How else do you explain men who go on the rooftops of buildings with them? with weapons, and begin to mow down innocent people. Oh, they're just, they've just got emotional problems. Yeah, but are Witness the openness of immorality in our society. You say, well, men have always been unclean, but they haven't always been open with them. Remember the activity of unclean spirits. They bring man's depravity out in the open. They put it on a showcase for everybody to see. They make men without shame. They fear the conscience. My dear people, immorality and uncleanness has become the standard of our mass communication, the standard of fashion, the standard of entertainment, the standard of general behavior with many people. Witness the rapid growth of false religions, and many false religions springing up in our own beloved country are openly aligned with Satanism. Witness the general withdrawal of the masses from true religion. Witness the influence of error and ungodliness within the visible church. Witness the despair and depression and desperation which marks an ever-increasing segment of our society. All of this is more than mere the mere outgrowth of human depravity. Or to be very sure, human depravity readily lends itself to such things. But the instigation for all this lies in Satan and in the forces of hell. It has always been my like this. We've always had to praise men, but we haven't always had such overt expressions of depravity. But what do you think that Satan would make head for this Why? It must be because he meets with so little resistance. It must be because he can carry out his wicked designs rather infamously. Remember the account of pioneer missionaries who went into the hearts of foreign countries who had never seen the white man, much less the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how they found demonic activity to flourish? But so when the missionaries came preaching the gospel, suddenly something began to happen, and the power of Satan was broken. We never had that problem before, and I'll tell you why. Because the strength of the gospel and the influence of the church was such that Satan met with strong resistance in our beloved country. Not so anymore. Little resistance is being offered against the onslaughts of hell. Much like Legion's neighbors, the church has forsaken the world as a hopeless cause, and we fled into seclusion for fear of contamination. And my dear people, that's happened. And it's happening to us. We're scared. We're running scared. We're leaving the world. We're leaving the unsaved masses to the demons of hell. And we're saying... By our actions, go ahead, Satan. Take them over. We don't want them. Just don't touch us. Now, what do we do about it? my dear people, it is our responsibility to do something about it. What must we do? Well, we must do exactly what Jesus Christ did. What did he do? He openly confronted evil with truth and righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew that this man was there, living in those tombs, Nobody else perhaps knew it, but he knew it, and he came to confront the man. Here was a man taken captive by Satan, and Christ came to break the dominion of the evil one. And he said, I must have that man. And he went and confronted the man with truth and righteousness. And the spell of Satan was broken. Well, to be very sure, we're probably not prepared to do that right now. But my dear people, we had best get prepared. We have been sent to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to be the savory influence among men. And when Satan comes and takes over, it's because the church has wanted her Savior. We've got a job to do. And it's not to go into seclusion, my dear people. It's to go out and do battle in the name of Jesus Christ. But that requires much that we don't have. It requires that we live under the shadow of the Almighty. It requires that we walk where Jesus Christ walked. It requires a daily communion with the Son of God. It requires that we be filled with the Spirit. It requires that we live by faith, believing that Jesus Christ will keep us uncontaminated from the world if we confront it, believing that the truth and grace of God is stronger than the forces of hell. It requires that we zealously instruct everyone about us in the truth of God, beginning with our own children and going into neighborhoods and communities. That's our responsibility. And that's my answer to us who've given the world up as a, as a hopeless cause and are holding back the gospel from men who are dying without it. Now, one final word to those of you outside of Christ. And I don't know the state of your heart, but somehow I believe, I believe it. If for no other reason than I prayed with great deal of liberty that the Lord would bring unconverted folk to this place. And I believe that there are some of you here today who outside of Christ might I urge you to take lessons from this text. First, I urge you to be instructed by the deeds. Learn that Jesus Christ is God, and that as God he is the righteous judge before whom every man and every spirit must stand and give an account. Learn what they knew, that everlasting torture and torment is the end, the absolute guarantee to every worker of iniquity. It's just a matter of time till it comes to pass. But then most of all, I would have you to take instruction from this poor sinner. He was the son of a fallen Adam, just as you are. He was no more lost than you are. He was utterly without strength. He had no ability to cast out the strong man, neither do you. You are a sinner, and whether you are presently under demonic control or not, you are just as helpless as he to change your heart and to right yourself with God. But then, witness how Jesus Christ came. Witness how Christ cast out the strong man. Witness how Christ subdued this man's wicked heart. Witness how Christ turned this child of Satan into a child of the Most High God. Witness the transforming grace of God. Why didn't Christ cast the demons into hell? He didn't, you know. He granted their request. He let them go on in their liberty for a season. before. One reason. This is not the day of judgment. It's the day of salvation. Jesus Christ has not come to judge the world. He came to save sinners. There is a day of judgment coming, my dear people. And when that day comes, it will be too late to cry out for grace. There will be no grace in that day. But you see, today is the day of salvation. There's no judgment today, only grace. Call upon how he is me. Some of you are outside of Christ. You know it and I know it. And there's not one thing you can do to wrap yourself aside. Your only hope is in the Son of God. I call upon you. I urge you, children, young people, adults, cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord of glory, before whom the devils tremble. For he is the Son of the Most High God, and today he's the Savior of sinners. Tomorrow, he's the judge of the ungodly.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 3730 by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5.